It's wonderful to be in this room with teachers and principals and curriculum specialists and leaders of professional organisations and others who dedicate their efforts to giving young Australians, especially the ones who do it very tough, every chance to succeed. So thank you for coming along to this event tonight. This centre was founded by a teacher of mathematics, Greg Lindsay, over 40 years ago. And we work proudly to fill research gaps and to deliver policy reforms that will bring real improvements in teaching and learning, so much of which depends on efficient and transparent funding. I'd like to take just a few minutes to frame this evening's panel discussion within the broader work of our education team. There's a lovely old saying that a rising tide lifts all boats. Let's just think about that in relation to education for a moment. How can Australia, a first world, wealthy, democratic nation, built on the best of Western ideals, design and deliver the education needed to prepare young citizens for their post-school lives in the 21st century. It's the question that is occupying our minds every day all around the country. Our challenges are unique. A geographically remote, vast continent with a tiny, diverse population that includes many young learners whose first language is not English whose location and socioeconomic backgrounds make schooling a challenge, and others who experience levels and types of disadvantage that really need clever policy solutions. Unfortunately, and taxpayers should be asking very hard questions about this, Australian education has experienced decades of major policy swings and has relied far too much on untested fads and trends. In spite of a massive increase in public funding, $60 billion to school education in 2018-2019, Aussie kids are not topping the academic charts. Based on NAPLAN statistics, 25% of this country's Year 10 students leave school with poor literacy and numeracy results. There were just under 300,000 Year 10 students in 2018, which means that about 75,000 75, young Australians cannot move into senior secondary education or the workforce with confidence. We know that Australia's 15-year-olds do not perform anywhere near as well as they should in the OECD's international assessments of mathematics, science and reading. I'm sure many here, like us at CIS, are keen to see the next round of PISA results, which will come out in early December. To be absolutely clear, all students are disadvantaged by weak curriculum, poor teaching, and the ineffective spending of taxpayer dollars. As always, those who are born into healthy, happy, aspirational environments have the best chance of success. So what is the vision for Australian education? Where can we find the thoughtful acknowledgement of the effective practices of the past, as well as the detailed analysis of policy failures that have been avoided elsewhere in the world? 
My assertion is that Australia is currently stuck in a kind of education policy fog, still unwilling to really own the problems, still very vulnerable to the next shiny big thing that looks like it offers a solution. As we gather here tonight, there are at least seven national education reviews underway from early childhood to the teaching workforce, senior secondary pathways, some reflecting the recommendations of the Gonski Review and the Halsey Review into rural, regional and remote education, as well as the National School Reform Agreement. Or there are jurisdictional reviews, like the sixth review into NAPLAN being run by Queensland, WA and New South Wales. We've just seen an interim report as part of the review of the New South Wales curriculum, but in 2020, there is to be a review of the Australian curriculum. How does that work? These activities are siloed and uncoordinated. And we don't see a lot of evidence of proper sequencing according to an overarching timeline or vision. It's ad hoc, it's piecemeal, it's Band-Aid stuff. From now through the end of 2022, the CIS education team's work is designed to address key elements of school education in a very integrated way so that we can develop policy recommendations that will lift all young Australians. Our research will focus on school funding and choice, and that's why we're gathering here tonight. Teacher training national academic standards, assessment, we want to propose solutions to schooling that give every, every child the best chance to overcome the odds. And I think it's fair to say that the CIS has been a voice of reason in contributing to school funding debates to emphasise how rather than how much money is spent. Today we released a policy paper titled What do parents want from schools? which is the starting point for our research into school funding and school choice. And this evening, we'll hear from the paper's author, CIS Research Fellow, Glenn Fay. The panel, which I'll introduce in a moment, will explore that topic. And then I'll invite questions from you, from the audience. So please be thinking up the curliest questions that you can. It's my great pleasure now to introduce our panellists for tonight and ask them to take their places on the podium. Dallas McInerney, CEO of Catholic Schools New South Wales. Welcome, Dallas. You're right there. Michael Nuttall, Executive Officer of the Australian Primary Principals Association. and Diane Giblin, CEO of the Australian Council of State School Organisations. And I'd like to hand over to Glenn for the next section of this evening's agenda. Thanks, Glenn. Thanks everybody for being here tonight. Uh, school choice and school funding, the areas in which I look after here in the CIS program of research. Uh, understandably among the key areas of CIS research on education policy, and they have been for the CIS's entire history. We take an interest in these topics, not only because they're indispensable to reasoned education policy debate at any time, but also because it's intrinsic to the CIS DNA. And that's because educational freedom 
is integral to the CIS's vision of a freer and more open society. And we see smart use of public funding of all sorts, and especially that with an important public investment like education, as key to effective government. Tonight I'll introduce some findings from recent polling commissioned by the CIS, and that's this paper here, What Do Parents Want From Schools, released just today, which looks at parents' perspectives into school choice and resourcing here in Australia. The insight helps light a torch for the CIS program of research that aims to provide policy solutions to bring about a freer and more open society when it comes to education. To us, it's parents' views that need to be heard more by policymakers, not the same loud vested interests that have dominated education policy for as long as anyone can remember. Even educators that suffer with the, their share of the most overzealous and naggy parents would have to agree that at the end of the day, parents remain the key stakeholder when it comes to education and the guardian of their child's welfare. And speaking of parents, it brings me to the results of this research. When it comes to funding, parents told us that they're not concerned about the levels of funding, despite policymakers' infatuation with funding boosts as a solution to all educational problems. In particular, 88% of parents across the country say their chosen school has enough or more than enough resources. And that includes 86% for those in the government school sector. This is important in the context of tonight's topic on choice because so often when we talk about choice, we're met with a counterproductive recourse to so-called funding wars between the sectors. In our research, it's reassuring to see that the conclusions about funding are more or less the same irrespective of the sector of school that parents have chosen. As the CIS has long argued, the extent to, which the, the, to the extent to which there's inequality within school funding in Australia, it's by a postcode rather than by sector. And that brings me to the issue of choice. What was perhaps most striking in our research was that two in five parents across the country wouldn't endorse the chosen school. That means that around 1.6 million students across Australia are in a school that their parents aren't happy with. If this were the equivalent of an Uber ban in schools, then they'd be off the road by now. But, and at the risk of introducing a, an intersectoral fire, it does appear that parents are happier when they've chosen a non-government school than those that have chosen a government school. Something that members of the pa tonight's panel may have a ref some reflections on. Now, detailed soul searching about why so many parents are, aren't happy with their chosen school is beyond the scope of a single survey. But no, and no doubt people in the room and, and certainly members of the panel will have their insights. In a broad sense, I think it's useful to, to frame the issue in terms of two different sets of parents when we're talking on this topic. And that's because there's different kinds of policy implications that, that should apply. The first group of parents that were limited in their choices to start with, meaning they're unable to pick their preferred school or they've had to go to extensive lengths in order to do so. Polling indicates that this may represent around two thirds of parents in Australia and one in five that say that they're very limited when it comes to choosing a school. Often it's barriers like location and cost that get in the way. They've, they have their own reasons why they may also be unhappy with their choice. And if they had their time again, unconstrained by those barriers, they may clearly have another preference in mind. But this is where policymakers have got some work to do in relieving some of the burdens that are caused by location and cost. 
Some are inevitably unable to be resolved, the tyranny of distance, particularly in rural Australia. But many have solutions that are available to policymakers. And at the moment, it's clear that in many ways, government is more the problem than the solution when it comes to choice enabling. When it comes to cost, our convoluted funding structure is a, is a very indirect way of providing financial assistance to parents in order to overcome burdens of cost. When it comes to location, governments provide a mandate on where, school, where parents can and, can and can't uh, send their children. And the place of that in a, in a free and open society has to be something that we question. The second set of parents are those that did get into their preferred school, but are disappointed with that experience. We might call these a, the classic case of buyer's remorse parents. And there's a couple of implications for policy there too. One is that we could help parents to make more informed choices of school in the first place. And that sounds simple. It's a inf make, make customers more aware and they'll make better decisions argument. But it's important that parents have a, cl a clearer idea and, and expectations about the schools that they're getting into. Because it can be quite hard to transition out of schools once, that they're, once, they're, once they're set up. In our research, we asked parents about what information they sought in helping make their choice of school. Word of mouth and visiting schools are the most popular sources of information, and a majority of parents uh, use these as recourses in making their decisions. Visiting school websites, meeting with school staff, and using independent tools like the MySchool website are used by many parents, but by, ma but by no means a majority. Yet the traditionally relied upon resources, particularly word of mouth, is particularly an, an unreliable source of information for making decisions about your child. And it's important that more parents take a more independent look at, at schools and make up their own conclusions by, by things like attending the school, meeting staff, and in particular making use of uh, validation tools like the MySchool website. And our research shows that parents that do take steps like this tend to make choices that they're happier with. Another implication is to give parents more of a say in how schools are run. And this is particularly true for parents that don't have an alternative school that they could jump ship to. If you can't, can't change it, fix it. And it does appear that in Australia, many more parents are willing to take a more active role in governing their schools. Today, there's over 770 schools in the country that are called independent public schools, which operate under the government school umbrella but they've got uh, school boards made up of parents of the community that, that take an active interest in the decisions made at school. That so many parents and so many schools are willing to take such a step voluntarily is, is encouraging and should encourage policymakers to consider expanding options like this in the, within the government school sector. Our research told us, and, and here I'm bringing resourcing back into the fold, that. Parents who chose a non-government school felt more confident in the school's use of resources. And this might have something to do with more flexible and devolved forms of spending decisions that typically uh, are typical of independent schools in particular, and of course are at odds with many centrally determined spending decisions in government schools. There's something to, th to this flexibility and local decision making that seems to be resonating in parents' decisions about confidence in the use of resources. So making government schools more flexible is certainly something that needs to be on the table. And to close this address, I 
I would like to take them a minute to reiterate that it really is our vision that families of all kinds, not just those that are wealthy and not just those that have had the privilege of a great education of their own, gain better access to choice when it comes to picking schools. We would hope that this will cut down the, the number of Australian parents who experience buyer's remorse and more importantly, young learners that feel a misfit when it comes to their education. I dare say we won't resolve all issues about school choice here tonight, but I would hope that we can get a little further along the line here. And I think that makes it time for our panel discussion. Thanks, Glenn. Thanks. Thank you, Glenn. So we're looking forward to a, a robust and, and friendly and um, energetic debate tonight. And once again, I'd like to welcome Dallas, Michael <laughs> and Di um, to the panel, who, who no doubt have um, between them probably more experiences than, than the rest of us in terms of dealing with government and trying to manage policy as it's rolled out and, and all of the, 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 the challenges that come to representatives and leaders of organisations such as theirs. So I'm starting with, with um, a, a slightly, what did you call it? Glenn clunky question. I have to just provide a little bit of context, so please bear with me. It's 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 a little bit long, but it's a question for for our three guests tonight um, to try and set the scene. Given that we have a long-standing national commitment in Australia, this, it's unique in world terms, to school choice, a tripartite model that all governments have agreed to, so in place for 60 years or so, which states that every child is entitled to a base level of public funding towards their education. And given that this gives parents and students access to government schools, Catholic schools and independent schools, and given that we have agreement on a dollar figure of about 11,500 per primary student, and about 14,500 per secondary student. And given that we have seen taxpayer funding increase enormously over the last decade, as I mentioned before, $60 billion in this financial year, and we now have a commitment to needs-based funding that puts a clear focus on disadvantage, so targeting the students who need that support most. Why are we still talking about school funding and school choice? Dallas, if I may start with you. Thank you, everyone. Uh, I, I have to start by acknowledging the CIS and putting on this forum uh, the history and breadth of expertise across so many policy areas makes it an adornment to this city and its cultural fabric. So Tom and the team and Blaze, thank you very much. Uh, I'd much rather not talk about funding at all. And in fact, after we signed a 10-year funding agreement with the government last year uh, from 2018 through the decade hence, uh, we're in pretty much a steady state. Um, the more interesting conversation to have now is what are we going to do with that money? And I think uh, no matter what sector you're in or represent, um, there's a, dare I say, a lack of maturity on the part of the leaders in the school sector uh, who aren't ready for a public debate which is already on its our doorstep. And it's an input-output equation. After wailing and uh, lobbying and screaming for more money for the best part of a decade, and now we have record levels of funding, the more money is now in Australian schools in the history of the Commonwealth. Um, it's not 
unexpected that policymakers who agreed to the proposition that we put to them now turns out you have your inputs. We're going to have a zero-like focus on your... Uh, we're going to zero in on your outputs now. That's standardised testing. That's a whole bunch of other indices. Uh, efficiency, effectiveness, um, well-being. And uh, that this is not a proposition which sits comfortably in traditional education conversations. But if we don't get used to it, I think we're going to do ourselves a great disservice. Um, so to answer the question, I'd, I'd like not to talk about funding in a quantum uh, to, for too much longer because I think that, uh, you know, we are well resourced. The other part of the funding part, uh, debate we might have to return to is uh, the very real possibility this is the last generation of uh, school attendees who will be so well resourced by their government. As the bell curve of the age profile of this country keeps shifting up uh, to uh, 60 plus, uh, and we're servicing the 5 to 10 or 5 to 15 sector, there's less and less and a bigger demand at the other end of the age bell curve, then the policy shift, the, the, the focus and the resources will shift up there. So we are, in some measures, in clover. We are, we are swimming in gravy. Um, that may not be You'll a, be quoted a on proposition that, shared swimming uh, by <laughs> other people uh, on the panel, but we are well-resourced and we have to make sure we make the most of, most of it. Thank you, Fiona. It's a, uh, look, it's a good question why we do continue to seem to be having a, uh, an ongoing debate about school funding. But look, with the Australian Primary Principals Association, um, who I'm with, uh, our approach is first up in terms of school funding uh, is that uh, school funding is, has been settled, the, the agreements are in place, um, but more so in terms of school choice. We have uh, readily, readily acknowledged that uh, choice is a, a big part of, of the Australian education system and uh, we support parents' rights to choose the best school for their, for their child. Uh, in terms of uh, do we have enough funding, well, I think the, the debate finishes and then what we should be looking at is how we can say that our schools are focused on producing quality education um, for every, every child in them. And I also think there's a little bit of a separation when we, we, we do throw uh, primary schools in with secondary schools. And I think we have to sort of... Um, move a little bit away from that because there is a distinct difference between the primary school arrangement where you've got children in a in a school in their local community probably having a fairly uh, effective uh, parental engagement and understanding of what the children in that school need uh, whereas the secondary model secondary schooling moves a little bit outside that sort of um, local community approach to things so I think we do need to say that our, and, and looking at the um, figures that came out there, Glenn, I'd be interested to know what the difference is between primary and secondary um, parents, what they think of their school, because I think, uh, and I might be guessing here, but um, I'd, I'd um, have an educator guess in saying that I think most parents are generally very satisfied with their primary, uh, primary school. I can see some nods in the, um, in the crowd. And... Uh, and that would be whether they're in a government school, a Catholic school, or an independent school. 
I can add to that that yes, uh, parents are reporting higher levels of satisfaction in primary and lowest at senior secondary level. Uh, so I think that there's there's something we've got to ask about why that might be, and and this can be around you know it, with parents being unsatisfied. Is it around the kind of subject selections available for senior secondary? Is it to do with the pressures that that are being faced? Is there is there uh, pressure on the te on teachers that's being reflected? Um, because of course it can be a more demanding uh, can be a more demanding experience on the on the school side as well. But it's something that I think is is an important distinction to make. That yes, different stages of schooling face different challenges and. And, w and as part of our ongoing work, of course, that's the kind of thing we would drill into. I think it's a good thing to look at. And it could also be that parents have these wonderful dreams for their child in the younger years and they put them in a school and their children are, are very, uh, you know, amenable and healthy and happy. And then as they discover later on they're not going to be a pilot or a doctor, they, uh, parents get a little bit um, upset with <laughs> the result of all that education. She turned into teenagers. Yes. <laughs> Over to you, Di. <laughs> yes. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm the one swimming in the gravy, is that correct? Um, <laughs> and for us it's a bit muddy, but of course, you know, uh, um, our, our, our mantra, of the, oh, sorry, the Australian Council of State School Organisation has a, a mantra of, of funding being fair, simple and transparent and, and things that, 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 that families can understand and that um, sometimes uh, some some of the funding arrangements to, to parents seem a little bit more equal in some sectors and not in others. For, for us, w absolutely, uh, we do believe in parental choice and that parents can choose where they send their child. But our, our, we preface that with saying that every child in, in the country should be receiving a high quality education where they have access and opportunity. And we, we particularly talk about our rural and remote schools when we talk about this as well. We know that um, families uh, um, don't often choose uh, their, uh, anything but their local primary school and we often encourage families to say that the early years are the, are the key and uh, that's where we should be as families concerned. Um, for us, family engagement is one of the most important and one of the most well-researched and the one of the most not talked about. Um, things for, for, for parents, where the relationships are strong, where the connections are strong, uh, then we can see the success in our kids and, and where the schools are willing to speak with us. Um, as far as decision making, yes, we've seen a lot of um, independent public schools starting out and we know that the models in Western Australia are not as happy as what they had first uh, originally planned to be. Uh, in speaking with a colleague this morning, uh, Queensland independent public schools seem to be working well. We know in New South Wales there was a big surge of school councils in the 80s and 90s and um, I was actually one of the instrumental people to dismantle those uh, because of the, of the parent voice not quite getting through the way that it should. So um, uh, I think I've muddled up the answer there, but to, to say that I, probably from our perspective, we may not stop talking about funding um, quite to the extent, but we understand that what needs to happen now, because well, for one, it, there's no guarantee of 100% SRS for public schools. Uh, it's 95%, so we're not um, particularly overwhelmed with that. Well, we're not, uh, we're not at all happy with that. We want the states and territories to, to, to step up to the mark and uh, ensure that there's 100% SRS for public education and that should nothing less should be accepted. Um, I might leave it there for the moment anyway. And that's a key point to make, isn't it? We, we always need to, to be reminded that, that ultimately 
the taxpayer dollars are funneled through the states and territories and distributed by them. Um, so it's, it's very important to remember that, that the, the, the devolution of responsibility for funding happens in, a, in very real terms, and, and Glenn can, can talk more about that um, a little bit later. I think just to add on that, that some of the things in the funding agreement um, not necessarily always go directly to public education. I mean, uh, some of the student transport um, whilst it sits in that 95, that that percentage that goes to public schools is not necessarily always um, targeting public school kids. Any comment from you, Glenn? Before we, I think only to add. So, if, you, if to ask the question, why are we still talking about the same the same issue and beating the same drum o over and over? If I can plug the pe uh, our research yet again, uh, this tenant they seem to say to us that spending priorities that policymakers have pushed don't seem to be the same priorities that, that parents are expressing. So in our, in our poll, parents were more likely to express a need for more funding on infrastructure and facilities in schools and on providing more extracurricular activities in schools. At the same time, the, the priorities that have been expressed by policymakers for the last 10 years, 20 years or more, have been around reducing class sizes, have been around providing really an army of support staff in schools and in, uh, and in endlessly increasing teachers' wages. Now, these are all important priorities, and, and don't get me wrong, but when it comes to why we're still asking this question, perhaps it is that parents aren't quite happy and the systems aren't, aren't making decisions that are in line with what parents think. Mm, no doubt we'll, we'll return to that, and there may be some questions from, from parents and others in the audience um, about the very particular um, funding decisions that, that schools, principals could, should make. I'd like to m move to you again, Michael, if I may, with a, a question uh, about school choice. So we'll leave funding, Dallas, and move right, right into <laughs> choice. Um, Michael is in a particularly um, rich situation in terms of the experience of choice. And I'm, I won't say any more. I'll just leave it to you to tell us about that. Well, I'll, I'll quickly touch on my own as a as a child. Um, the choice for me was growing up in a Catholic, a large Catholic family, was go to the local parish primary school and go to the local par uh, or the the local high school. Uh, I then moved in actually into a government uh, government school for year eleven and twelve. All very good. Very happy with all of it. Um, but when I began at, at uh, working for APA, uh, one of the things I was able to say is that I had a child in each system, government, government school, Catholic school, and an independent school. It was an independent Catholic school, but, uh, you know, I was sort of drawn that way. Uh, and the choice, being able to make a choice, and it wasn't always necessarily a choice made by the parents when by the time the child gets to... Um, our daughter got to year 10, um, she decided that she would move from where she was into a, um, into a government uh, senior college. Uh, and I'd say that that worked ex exceptionally well for her. Uh, she was the second eldest. The eldest uh, girl was in a, um, in a secondary girls' school, went from 7 to 12, and she decided to stay, uh, whilst a couple of her close friends, very close friends, moved to that uh, to that same government uh, secondary school, but she was very happy where she was. And our two boys, we gave them them a choice. 
uh, as they finished year 10, where would you like to go? One applied for the, for the uh, government secondary school and, and was accepted but decided to stay where he was. So I think it's worked well for us as a family. They, um, uh, we'd be very satisfied with the education they received. Um, and I think uh, we could also say that the, the values of the schools aligned um, quite strongly with ours. So you uh, were in an urban setting where all of those choices were available to you. Is that right? Easily available. Easily, and within yeah. the sort of easy commuting easy, distance. Yeah, re- readily available. And um, and I, and I think that's you know that's a uh, particular advantage of living in a uh, in a capital city or a large regional uh, town. You have you have choice, which you possibly won't get in um, in a more uh, isolated or other smaller rural settings. But uh, yeah, I think you know having that choice was a good thing. And we had some interesting feedback on commuting times, didn't we, Glenn? Do you mind just pointing to those for a moment? Yeah, so, I mean, there's, there's often been a complaint that, and including a recent, recent argument peddled a few weeks ago, that, that parents that, sh- that don't choose a local school are responsible for unduly contributing toward congestion in our cities. Uh, traffic congestion, yes. Traffic congestion, to be clear, not, not other forms of congestion. Um, which seems a puzzling argument, but, but one, one question that we asked was around parents, that whether they chose the closest school to home or not. And we asked them about their commuting times. And of course, yes, parents that don't choose a local school on average have a longer commute. That's to be expected. But it's not dramatically more. So most parents that choose a local school are commuting for under 10 minutes. Most parents that go to the non-local school are travelling for 10 to 20 minutes. That to me, and that's a daily trip. So that, that to me doesn't seem to doesn't seem to um, to meet the the level of objection that that some have made in that respect. Di, if I could move to you um, with a question, and I, I'm going to quote briefly from a uh, an article in the press uh, from the 11th of August uh, this year about New South Wales cracking down on out of area enrolments, um, and and I quote. This would be an easier policy to defend if all public schools were equal, but they are not. Reputation is a spurious way to judge a school, to choose a school. But other differences between public schools are real and worrying to parents. Some have brand new state-of-the-art buildings. Others haven't been upgraded in decades. Some have outstanding principals who inspire their teachers, which translates to high-quality learning for students. Others don't. Curtailing choice will not go down well with families. And I'm just wondering, Di, would you have a comment on on this zoning, out-of-area enrolments issue that is so much a, a feature of discussion at the moment? It's interesting, actually. I was at Parents Victoria conference yesterday and this actually came up as okay. one of the, the conversation mm-hmm. pieces that uh, families were concerned that they were being locked into uh, the local school. And I mean, you know, the ideal answer to that is to have a, you know, a high high quality, well well facilitated local public school. That's the that's the answer. It's not the reality, unfortunately. And um, and I was actually only speaking to um, my husband this morning, who's a secondary teacher, and about um, the conversation you had about how 
families choose their school and what what do what do they base it on and i can assure you that i, I live in western sydney which has its fair share of affordable non-govs as well as uh, public schools and um the cambridge park Warrington downs facebook page is where people often go to to choose their school and it's based on what is what is seen as to be in their local environment and what what is not so some of what you said of people visiting schools mm, and uh the uh, unfortunately the my school website doesn't often rank uh when people are choosing its word of mouth. Um, the, the, there are pluses and minuses to the zoning. Um, I think there is there is the ability to use the demographics to predict um, and to ensure that uh, we provide great services to local kids. And then there is, of course, the, the issue of families where um, sometimes needs are not met, um, where one child may need special support in, a, in another school and then the siblings... Um, can't join them in those schools. So uh, that was the conversation actually yesterday. Um, and the other one, of course, is the logic of um, sometimes the school that you're zoned in um, technically is further away than your school that's very close. Uh, and um, and it gets rezoned quite often uh, to the point where I know um, uh, one of my children, and we won't hold them to this, uh, uh, got their children into the local school on the grounds that I was the pick-up point, um, which I am, and I'm in the local school, but they're just out. Well, now I'm out of it too. So that means that siblings that follow. So I think uh, for family connections, I think we need to be a little bit more flexible with that sort of um, uh, way and meeting the needs of families because often there are two working families. They may be dropping off and picking up and uh, the, the moving around of that. But I can understand some of the practicalities of it in the sense of being able to predict demographics. Um, the other about the resourcing, absolutely. Um, uh, we've seen uh, uh, well, the largest growth is in public education, um, according to the ABS data, but with probably the um, smallest amount of uh, new schools being built uh, in particular areas. And again, I'll, I'll quote Penrith only because I know it so well. Uh, Jordan Springs School is still another three years away and kids are being transported across you know, probably three to four Ks which doesn't sound a lot, I know, but in uh, Penrith traffic it's quite a considerable amount of time, um, uh, to passing some government schools to go to another one because of the fact that we don't have that infrastructure. Um, and I suppose it's not adding insult to industry, but in, it's not adding insult, I suppose, but often we will, um, our public schools will hire the non-government school hall for functions. And again, that, um, yeah, that it's, uh, it's not a... It's not an envy or anything along that lines. It's just, you know, why don't we have that resource? And why aren't those resources provided? So some of our government schools are, are in, in great need of upgrade and uh, great need of um, uh, new structures to support them. What is the delay, would you, would you say? What, what, how would you uh, explain the three-year delay, for example, in providing a new school? I mean... What needs to happen? Is government simply not responding quickly enough? Or? I think. Well, I think that's yeah, that's the answer. That uh, where, you know where, where the where the money comes from from these schools. You know, uh, it, there's a there's a huge population growth in many of these um, outer 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 Sydney areas. Uh, lots of. Um, uh, mansions, I suppose we often refer to them out our way, or uh, granny flats, townhouses, huge population growth. Uh, I think it's probably tripled in 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 western and southwestern Sydney over the last few years. And I can you the, the amount the schools are not meeting up with the growth. 
uh, the public schools are not meeting the growth. You've got, um, you know, we've got demountables on football fields and um, that's, that's not adequate and that's not what our kids deserve. And of course parents can't wait three years, so they no, will... No, that's right, no. And, and they're not, you know, um, not in a position to pack up and move to get to a school, you know. Uh, they're, uh, they're, they're choosing their local school because their local school... Um, is their choice and their local schools available to them and I mean you know building on to what you said that when we've asked parents what 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 is the first thing that you look at when you're looking at choosing a school it's location locality um, and um, making sure it meets the needs of my child and my family and I think when we've got zoning sometimes it doesn't meet the needs of some families. Dallas, I, I know I said I wouldn't use the F word again, but I, I do have to go back to it because I, I do have a question that, that was was um, put to me uh, as, a, as an important one to ask, and it is key to this discussion about choice. If we want parents to, to have genuine choice and we want to make sure that, that the school they choose is the best possible fit for, the, for their child... Um, how do we make sure that fees don't increase to the point where they become unaffordable, but at the same time the perception is that subsidies are increasing? So we've got, in a, in a sense, um, unaffordable, uh, unaffordable places in, or unaffordable schools, fees increasing, but this vast amount of money being poured into the various systems. How, how does... How does that work? I'll answer your question, but let me go back to some first principles, and if you do want some blood sports up here, this might provoke it. Um, to be frank, the only reason choice is a feature of the Australian school landscape uh, is because of Catholic schools, in the main, predominantly. Uh, we have a national network of almost 1,800 schools right across every point of the compass, every state in the Commonwealth, with another 70 schools planned for the next five years. Now, uh, we, which makes our system globally unique, we have a parallel system of low-fee, affordable schools sitting next door, quite literally, to the government school public offering, free and secular as it is. Um, without that network of low-fee schools, we wouldn't, really wouldn't be experiencing the choice that, we, uh, that we're talking about here today. Uh, there's a bit of growth from the independents, and that's, and that's terrific as well. Um, our view has always been that we support a well-resourced school sector, no matter uh, what, what, what denomination, uh, if it's secular or if it's a government school, there is a rising national dividend uh, to be had and experienced through a well-resourced school sector. Our care for kids in public schools um, it doesn't stop just because they don't wear our uniform. There's 300,000 plus Catholic kids sitting in public schools uh, today. So um, we have a real keen interest that their learning outcomes, their pastoral journey is ex all that it can be. Um, so, you know, th the wasted energy of years past of friction between the sectors, I think uh, it doesn't behove us to carry that forward. Um, we have... Uh, through this network of uh, low-fee uh, affordable schools right across the country, avoided the worst form of postcode determinism, which you see in other parts of the world, particularly the United States, where they have to uproot themselves, uh, move to a different school district, uh, and then try and access a better school 
uh, option, option there. Uh, this is a personal view. If I had my way, I'd get rid of any school boundaries, any school district, no matter the sector. Too often it can serve just to an inoculate a particular school from competitive tension when people want to go elsewhere. They've got a captured market. So, um, and the reason school choice is so important re regarding, you know, related to districts is because it is an off-ramp to, um, it's an escape route out of a really poor school educational setting and it's an on-ramp to an opportunity to another. And uh, we should defend that as a feature of the Australian school system for as long as we've got breath. And I think we do that well and, you know, the, and I think the Catholic system has done the heavy lifting ar around that. So, um, and we'll continue to do so. For, if you want to come back to the, the funding issue, um, uh, the, there is a, uh, a tax on choice in this country. Uh, this year alone, uh, Catholic parents and families will pay $3 billion in fees and capital levies uh, to exercise a choice not to go to the government school and say, you know, we're going to go to this school. Uh, so the fees effectively is a, ta is a tax on their choice, but it's a tax they're willing to pay and have done for, uh, for many, many, many decades. So um, I think we're at a point of uh, a policy settlement, if you like. There's an equilibrium where... Uh, we understand the different offerings across the three sectors. Um, they're well resourced, uh, and we're not trying to, you know, climb on top of each other at the expense of uh, somebody else. Um, there's space for us all, um, but anything where you have a compulsory activity mandated by government, you you need to put a competitive tension in, into the dynamic, and that's exactly what uh, school choice does. And the Catholic school, the, the public school on this side of the road is a much better school for the presence of the Catholic school on the other side and vice versa. And, um, you know, there was some mention around the transport uh, options. Uh, I mean, no, it's not only in metro... If you were to drop a pin, right, if you go down to car park, car park at Stanmore Maccas, you know, you, know, you finish revving up your WRX, but you thought, OK, what, what schools have I got around here? There's four or five Catholic parish schools you can get to really easily, from Leichhardt to Annandale to, to Stanmore. You could go down to some big independent congregational schools. Uh, you've got Newington and Scholasticus. You've got some terrific public schools around the place. You can do that. You go to a regional town like Bathurst and, you're again, spoiled for choice. Parish schools, congregational schools, independent schools, non-denominational schools. And, uh, you know, I think if we spend more time celebrating that and the, and the dividends that choice delivers, I think we'll find much more agreement from between the sectors than you might think. So do you think, and this is a general question, is the problem really about lack of diversity within the government sector? I think some of the fiercest competitive tension you see in the Australian school system is inside the government sector. I mean, the cottage industry to get into a selective... Uh, high government high school is phenomenal uh, and not at all healthy, I, I'd venture. Similarly with uh, the selective s state sports high schools. Um, so there's an enormous amount of uh, competition to get in uh, just so inside the government sector itself um, before you even get to between the sectors. Although New South Wales is quite distinctive in that way. Countrywide. Uh, it, that is not a national mm. picture. Mm. Um, Michael, do you hear complaints about fee increases in the non-government sector uh, look, while I all think this money is pouring in from taxpayers? Look, we certainly don't hear it because there's money pouring in. I think over the last um, uh, decade or more that fees in um, a number of independent schools have gone up 
considerably. And uh, I guess that's a uh, possibly a product of you know, general affluence of the Australian community. You know, we're a, we're a wealthy country. We've got uh, uh, parents, you know, off quite often two income or or a single income that's um, you know quite high. And uh, I think schools have positioned themselves to be able to do that. I don't think that's the case in the Catholic schools. I mean, for a Catholic education, and I'm, I've been there and uh, been a principal in, in the Catholic system and things, that uh, it does offer, a, as, as Diane said, it does offer a, an affordable um, option for parents. Um, I guess it's part of the choice. You know, People can sort of say, I'm prepared to put in this amount of money to uh, for what that school offers, and and those schools do offer facilities, do offer um, the co- extra co curricular and the like that uh, that a lot of parents uh, yearn for, and so um, you know they would see it as value for money. So um, I, I don't think people sit back and go, oh no, it's uh, the fees are going up by five five percent or ten percent or whatever. Have waiting lists, right? So mm. obviously there's a there's, there's no problem with the no. parents. No. Glenn, any, True. any but thoughts I mean, it's, not, it's not fair to say that the funding has increased above costs, right, year on year, at the same time that fees have also been increasing. And, and if the sectors are awash with money, then, that, then I think there is a reasonable reason to ask, why aren't parents seeing fee relief, right? And I think, that, I think that that's something that, that, that we've got to put into context, is that if we, if we are genuine about... Uh, about affordability and access for non-government alternatives. And yes, there are some very successful low-fee options in the Catholic sector, but it's certainly, we certainly can't generalise that ac- and extrapolate across the whole of the non-government sectors that, that say that, yes, there are now schools are now X more affordable as a result of increases in funding. And I think that that's something that, that we should be concerned a bit about. By no means, but there seems to be an issue here that, that it's more that supply seems to be constrained. It's, it's more an argument that we need more options in the non-government sector than anything to try to release some of that, uh, that ability for, I guess, for one of a better term, monopoly pricing that, that is currently in place. And I wouldn't say that there are not fees in a government school (laughs) and that there are kids excluded from things because of some things that need. Um, And and I I don't want to go down this path, particularly for you, Dallas, um, but I sit on the Public Education Foundation scholarships and I've read in the last 12 uh, 12 days, I've read some 230 um, applications for scholarships. Um, These are people that choice is their local public school but even to access education and the things that are required for them to be successful and to uh, to participate in their local government school requires these scholarships. I think, um, you know, uh, yes, I understand what Michael's saying that some people are prepared to pay and blah, blah, blah. Um, there are people that 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 just doesn't happen for and is not even in the equation and are applying for scholarships for them to be able to participate fully in their local government school. So I, I just needed to put that on the table because I've read some quite heartbreaking stories over the past two weeks of um, young people, including a kindergarten scholarship where there was 97 applications uh, for kindergarten kids. So, you know, um, I just need that picture to be painted a little bit more clearly. One last question. Um, 
OECD statistics show that Australia has more than double the number of students in non-government schools across the world. Uh, a third of our students go to private schools and of those well over half are in Catholic schools. Why is Australia an international outlier in this way? Uh, international outlier, international leader. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's a perspective. I, 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 think, I think you have to go back to the historical formation of education in this country. Um, quite often, I mean, the first non-government schools put down were Catholic and they anchored country towns and regions uh, sometimes many decades, years, decades before there was a government school presence. And they did this all free of government abetment off their own bat and uh, voluntary workforce. So uh, I think once you having having that as a foundational feature, the early history, not only of schooling, but of the, of the, of the nation itself, then it grew from there. And they, uh, obviously generations uh, came to like what they saw and experienced. And um, there has been some significant attempts to try and undercut uh, uh, you know, the validation of school choice and its provision uh, right up until you know, the High Court and the, and the dogs case. So, um, but it's persisted. It's endured uh, because it has widespread uh, public support amongst parents. Uh, there's an acknowledgement inside the policy community that by funding modestly as it does the non-government sector, there is still a net saving to government. When we, for example, as the Catholic sector say, actually, you know you have a 100% obligation enshrined in legislation that for every kid that presents themselves in New South Wales, you must provide a, a spot for them. Uh, and that's enshrined in law. That's an obligation on the State Department. We say, um, you know what, we're going to take around 20% of the market, us Catholics, and we're going to do some heavy lifting for you. And so it's a massive relief off the budget for, for the state government. And um, But, you know, I, I hear what Di says. We make sure the resources are there. And it's a luxury we have. When someone comes to one of our schools, we can't fit them in. We have a waiting list. When they come to one of the Di schools, there's a demountable. Uh, and that's not something we should accept. Michael, why do you think? Is it habit? Tradition? Well, I, there's there's not a lot that I can add to um, Dallas's comments. The um, it is the system we've got. Uh, it's it's served well, and that's not to say that we shouldn't have a strong focus on having a quality education for every child, no matter what school they're in. And uh, some parents will make the choice of a high-fee-paying independent school or a low-fee-paying Catholic school or a government school. I think it's, uh, you know, it's imperative. And I, can, I, can, I see the saving for the government in terms of a couple of those options. I, can, uh, I, sort of, I do appreciate that. But I think um, one of the tragedies of Australian education is the demise in some sense, and it may be something that's particular to New South Wales, is... Uh, whether demise is the right word, of the comprehensive government high school, where um, you know, when I went to my local school, uh, local government high school for year 11 and 12, I was in a, uh, a wonderful mix of people. I don't know that that's available for everyone and uh, there's times where we see uh, strong advocates uh, for government schools and so there should be because every school should be a good school and, and provide a quality education. Um, but they're maybe not um, seeing what's happening and uh, appreciating that uh, 
where they have their own children or their own experiences are quite uh, different from what be, what might be there in um, the outer suburbs of Sydney or in some of the um, you know battling country towns, um, and so. We need all three of us here. I think we, we'd all be strong advocates for um, all schools to be good schools, for um, our government system to be as strong as it can be, and uh, and sure allow parents to make a choice across uh, across three sectors. It's not unreasonable. Dar, do you have any final thoughts on why odd, we ha- why we man on the table here <laughs> <laughs> or woman? Um, uh, probably just one thing I would echo Michael's um, comments about the local comprehensive high school. I think uh, market forces and aspiration has uh, had a lot to do with um, uh, to do with the um, I wouldn't say destruction, but the demise of the the local comprehensive high school. Um, I'm, I'm a firm advocate for that. My children all went to the local comprehensive high school. My grandchildren go to the local comprehensive high school. Um, just I would say that um, the, the comments on savings, um, what cost is it to a country where every young child doesn't get the full access and opportunity to be the best they can be? And I believe that that's where we should be sending our priorities, looking at our early childhood area and ensuring that every child has access and opportunity to be the best they can be Otherwise, that's where we're going to not have savings in the future for our country. Thank you, Di. I'd like to uh, take a f- open the um, questions up to the audience just for a few moments. Um, thank you. Yes. Thanks. Um, um, this is to Glenn and, and but, uh, maybe Michael has a view as well. I'm just trying to work out from... Uh, I haven't had a chance really to, to read this report, but I think it's really great that the CIS have done this, so congratulations to, to you for that. To really work out that the driving force for people, or for parents moving, um, going to private rather than public, and I'm particularly interested in in whether it's um, the attractions of a private school or the problems in the public school system. So, uh, and I was looking, Glenn, at your appendix three here just very quickly, and you've got 8% of respondents um, said that religion was the most important thing, and, and I would have expected probably that would be quite a bit higher given the number of um, people going to Catholic schools and schools like the Church of England, you know, and. And also looking at that table, we've got an academic focus, um, 34%, and I'm interested in whether parents just don't feel that they're getting that in the public system or or not. And the 90% were concerned about school discipline and whether, again, that's something that's a problem in the public schools or it's a particular attraction for private schools. Um, And it ties in with uh, something Michael said, I think, about the competition, um, you know, between public and private, and, and even the selective schools that were referred to, whether um, that's another driver, that if people don't have confidence in their public, you know, comprehensive public school, that they're really trying to find another way to get out. So I suppose that's my point of curiosity, is does your data um, tell us a lot about this? There's a lot in there. Uh, <laughs> um, in terms of the question about what's driving people's decisions, you know, the push and pull kind of factors, 
we don't we don't cover that in in terms of this particular survey but of course it's an important question about particularly people at the margin and of the decision making about what what drives kind of that marginal choice um, perhaps it's a, a subject of of future research of ours um, but in terms of some of the these factors that, that you listed so one take the, taking discipline for instance parents that ultimately chose a catholic school were much more likely to preference discipline which is quite interesting that that, uh, that parents that, that have got a discipline focus uh, are more likely to preference a catholic choice um, around academic focus that was i couldn't say it was sort of either way um, because of course there's a lot of academic focus is still an important part of selective schools in particular uh, elements of of cost was another consideration in there. Parents, of course, that considered cost high on their priority list were more likely to select a government school. And that, that, that's probably to be expected. Um, and on t in terms of religion, so yes, the religion numbers were relatively low, and that's because we asked about what are the priorities for the your, cho your choice of school, and we listed the top three amongst the list. So it, yes, it's true that many more parents choose a non-government school which also is often a religious school. A, f a subset of them also are a religious household, and a subset of them see religion as a key, uh, a key reason driving that decision. So that's why that's probably a little lower than you might, you might have expected. I, I, I was involved in a, in a discussion some time back about um, uh, those sorts of questions. Why would, you, why would you move and things? I think, in, in what came out a little bit was. Um, there's a certain advantage that uh, that can sit in an independent school and a Catholic school in that they have a tradition that's travelled over. You know, if you're an independent school, it's uh, could be a could be a Christian school or could be just a, a secular school. It's it's been going for a number of years and it's held held fast to a particular way of doing things and a way of teaching even and certainly a uh, charism or whatever. So the Catholic schools have sort of the Catholic Church underpinning. Um, how they operate and, and the way they uh, work with people and families and children and things. And I think it, in some ways, and it might be a bit controversial here, but government schools can be um, a bit of a movable feast with a change of leadership and things, whereas if I walk into a Catholic school as a principal, I kind of have to operate the way, you know, the way that I'm... Um, the way that I have to, given its um, its teachings and understanding of how it deals with people and things, and, and occasionally there could be uh, situations where in a, a school where there's a change in leadership or a constant change or a number of changes in leadership, it doesn't have that sort of um, uh, glue that holds um, holds the organisation together. So. It, it is an advantage, I think, that Catholic schools and independent schools hold. And that's why uh, like my belief is that really we have to look at all schools being quality schools. You know, So government schools, that should be when you walk into a school as a school leader, I'm here to, uh, to uh, lead a school that's producing the, uh, the best education it can for the children based on evidence, based on um, experiences of other schools and what you can learn from others and all that sort of thing, but not chopping and changing, you know, or following a particular fad or, or whatever, as is seen from time to time. You've partly answered my question, but uh, I wonder why you haven't done some research 
on this particular question is that I'm, I'm a grandparent now, so I'm pretty glad of that. I think my kids have got a much more difficult problem than I have. But I think, and again, it's anecdotal evidence, but I think that many, many parents choose a school based on the ability of the teacher to get some discipline in class so that he can control the kids and effectively teach. Why haven't you done research on that? And Or do you think that parents don't, don't uh, use that as a difficult choice? We have, done, we have done some research in the last 12 months that's looked at what sort of factors help schools overcome particularly disadvantage. Uh, and these, these are schools that tend, are high performing despite coming from a disadvantaged background. And one of, the, one of the key findings of that was that discipline is a key ingredient in overcoming, essentially overcoming the odds that that's particularly students with disadvantage faced. But of course it's true, you know, across, across all, all schools that perhaps a level of discipline is less existent in the education system today than it has been in the past. <laughs> it's pretty wild in the 70s at times. <laughs> Hello, I have a question about funding. Um, the F word again. So uh, um, I was reading a report this morning about OECD countries and the amount of government spending as a percentage of all government spending that's go that goes to education. And it found that Australia was number nine, substantially above average. How does that correspond with our rankings for quality of education? Um, I'm from America, as you can tell. And one of the things that President Obama is famous for saying when he was petitioning for more government spending was that students can't learn in a trailer but my entire education was in a portable trailer. So I'm a little bit, obviously a little bit biased. So is there a much correspondence between quality of education and the quantity of money we're spending on that education? And luckily we have someone who has recently returned from working in Paris with the OECD. So very familiar with these statistics. Uh, so yes, yeah, so the figures you're referring to are from what's called the Education at a Glance publication of the OECD. Um, Look, the OECD has said for, for many years now that this, a simplistic comparison of overall resourcing, irrespective of the measure you pick, and there are a range to choose from, and I won't bore people with the details of those, but whichever one you pick, there's little to no association between overall achievement in test scores. And by test scores, we usually refer to the PISA testing that the OECD conducts. Of course, that, that's, that's a simplistic high level. That's not to say that particular cases funding can help and in other cases that funding is, is useless to educational achievement or of course that, that all educational achievement can be summed up in a single test. It's an indicator and like all other indicators, it does point to Australia having relatively high expenditure on, school, on, school, on schooling and also relatively poor achievement overall. Uh, so I'm from the Australian Indigenous Education Foundation. We provide scholarships for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids to go to boarding schools. Um, and we've supported over a thousand kids in the last 10 years with scholarship funding for those boarding schools. And the entire rationale of what we do is parental choice. We, we don't do any marketing or recruiting or whatever. Um, every applicant comes to us through their own research and, and word of mouth and so on. And we don't visit communities and try to enrol or recruit or sell scholarships at all. Um, and yet for every scholarship we have available, 
there's something like 30, 40, 50 applicants. Uh, and so the demand far outstrips supply. And the interesting thing is about 70% or more of our kids come from rural, remote and very remote communities. And um, as you all say, and we all agree with, um, you know, all schools should be great schools, but the reality doesn't currently match that. And, um, uh, you know, we've been achieving great results. Those kids are achieving retention year 12 completion rates over 90% and, and similar transition rates in careers <laughs> and university. Um, and I just, I, I, I'm interested, I suppose, in when it comes to the issue of parental choice, when you look at what those barriers are for particularly people from marginalised, vulnerable and disadvantaged backgrounds, of which there are many in the Indigenous communities, when you take away the financial barrier, <coughs> which is what our job is to do, um, that demand is enormous. And I'm, I, I guess I'm, two things I'm interested in. One is that whether this issue of choice is even greater for families in lower socioeconomic circumstances because, you know, families who aren't have got access to choices and the families that are in the lower income brackets don't have those access. And so that whole question seems to be much more important for those families who can't afford to make the choice. Um, and as we see, when you remove the financial barriers, we can't keep up with demand for that. Um, and, uh, and, and secondly, I guess, whether there's any particular focus you've done on the research there or planning to do on the research, and we'd be happy to, to um, collaborate if you want um, in the future, but around Indigenous families, particularly in rural, remote, very remote communities. And one of the interesting things is that, you know, there's a great sort of ideological resistance from, you know, the expected kind of... Um, quarters, which is um, not large in number but loud in voice, uh, about Aboriginal kids should stay in their communities and all this sort of nonsense that basically seeks to be paternalistic to Indigenous families who want to make choices. No, we don't think you should be able to make that choice. We want to tell you where your kids should be educated. Um, but no one says that when they're talking about farmers' kids or country politicians' kids. <laughs> or minors who work in remote communities. But if you're black and poor, people want to tell you where you should educate your kids. So we've got to get this ideology out of it as well. So I'm, I guess I'm interested in your perspectives on um, um, you know, the choice issue, particularly for poorer families, and whether there's anything specific you're looking at with boarding schools and or Indigenous families and students. First and foremost, may I say thank you very much for the offer to collaborate because that's one of the, the wonderful things that comes out of these opportunities. We, we, we uh, have um, these events so that we can bring as many people to these discussions as possible. And, and yes, we would welcome that opportunity. Um, yes, it is absolutely in the plan. Blaise Joseph, who's sitting right here at the front, um, who is well known to so many, um, is, is undertaking, embarking on um, a very important area of research around precisely what you have just described, looking at Indigenous, high Indigenous enrolment schools in particular, and um, uh, where there is um, excellent academic achievement and how that happens, um, and expanding that then, of course, into rural and remote locations and making sure that there are policies coming out of that research that, that will be, be of benefit much more broadly, because it's so important to distinguish between 
urban and remote and and uh, rural. But Glenn, did you want to add anything in terms of the research we're doing around school choice? Uh, probably one point to make, and I applaud the, the efforts that you, that you make. And, and, and one one uh, one other, again, to, to plug an OECD statistic, is what's called the resi a resilience measure. It looks at the performance of students from a uh, disadvantaged background that attend schools with peers that are more advantaged. And on this score, we do really well, better than almost all countries. And this, again, I guess gets to the, the argument that you make is that students that come from a disadvantaged background that are able to attend schools that aren't suffering from that same disadvantage in the community do really well. And that's something that's, that can be applauded that the programs like you've described can help families to do that. When it comes to discussions about choice and there are many other kinds of policy tools and levers that are available to policymakers in the US particularly that are especially to do with the question about access to uh, alternatives to the local school for disadvantaged students. It's nothing that's on the table here other than a, what's called a choice and affordability fund, broadly put, that the government announced a couple of years ago and is due to come to us with a response in the next, uh, next month, I believe, with some more details. That might be interesting to us around what opportunities that brings about, but ostensibly that might be a tool that could be of assistance there. If, if I might, uh, look, I applaud your work, sir. Thank, thanks for sharing it. It's, your foundation does such great work. The, the whole notion of school choice is predicated that one size did not, does not fit all. And that applies equally to Indigenous communities, Indigenous families and Indigenous students. So, And you say once you take away the financial barrier, uh, then the choice becomes real. And for the choice to become real, practical and accessible, the choice needs to be affordable and the price pain point at a level which is tolerable. Uh, and not painful, uh, which was one of the massive issues we had with the Malcolm Turnbull Simon Birmingham funding model, is that it did uh, assume a, a level of fees in uh, Catholic schools, sometimes triple and quadruple the amount of fees. It would have decimated school choice and a massive disturbance to the policy settings in the school sector in this country. And, um, you know, uh, Malcolm still wears the scars of that policy decision. But, uh, and with, with, uh, there's, there's 2,100 odd uh, students in Catholic boarding schools tonight in this state. Uh, a great many number of them are Indigenous. And year on year on year, the Catholic sector's um, uh, percentage of Indigenous children in our system is growing by big leaps year on year. Uh, some of our schools do fantastic work in collaboration with your foundation. Uh, and there's very uh, clearly not enough uh, in terms of numbers available, but the bursary uh, programs and, and other offerings uh, St Joseph's at Hunters Hill, St Scholastic's in Glebe, Mild School, Mild School, Stanislaw's in Bathurst, uh, dedicated programs where actually they go out and uh, make sure that they hit their targets and go to areas of need and make sure the opportunity is extended, not only with partnering with your foundation but other opportunities. So um, there's more work to be done. Colette, one more question I think because it's just about 7.30. Sorry, um, no, no, the Independent School Voice, um, I'm Colette Coleman, I'm from the Independent Schools Council in Australia. Um, fantastic discussion about choice. I guess I just wanted to add a couple of points um, and it's sort of coming from the discussion we just had. Um, the focus tonight on independent schools has actually sort of come across as being a high fee choice. 10% um, of our schools have no fees at all 
and they're the schools that are the Indigenous community schools, um, special assistance schools, which are alternative schools for kids who have been disengaged from schools across every sector and special schools. Um, the median fee in an independent school is $5,000. So I think we are actually, perhaps 40 years ago, we were more traditionally high fee, but certainly because of the various needs-based funding models over the last 40 years, we're now, um, I think we can say, you know, an affordable choice for many um, um, families. The other thing I just wanted to do is research that we have actually been doing um, is um, supports all of the questions that have um, come up tonight. We can I can provide some answers in terms of um, why parents choose independent schools at least. Sort of the top three priorities are perceptions of quality teaching, facilities, and values. In terms of religion per se, around 85% of independent schools are faith-based, but religion itself is actually around about priority number sort of seven or eight. It is more values rather than um, a particular religious faith, which is um, driving parental choice as a result of our um, research. But it is those other things like facilities, um, teaching and values that certainly um, we're finding um, parents are saying uh, are driving their choice of independent school. Um, and certainly the other really surprising thing is even in primary schools, children have a big say in which school they go to, which is reflecting what Michael was saying as well. Mm. Thank you. I have a sense that there are a number of people here who would benefit from connecting to, to others, which is a, a wonderful opportunity, and I'm putting my hand up to be a clearinghouse. So if you'd like to get in touch with me, very happy to put you in touch with... Oh, my goodness, I just had a thought about how many that might be. But um, very happy to, to um, pass on details and so on. So if you have any questions for us, of course, we will respond. Um, but um, please contact us. I know there were more questions, and I'm sorry, we've run out of time. I'm about to hand over to Tom Switzer, our CEO, to make the final remarks. Great. Thank you so much, Fiona, and thank you to our panellists, Dallas, Michael, Diane and Glenn, who is obviously the author of the major report we're launching here this evening and who has, as a result, been fielding many media inquiries. I think in the last 24 hours he's been in all the News Limited tabloids, The Australian, uh, the nine newspapers, so The Age, The Sydney Morning Herald, um, the Financial Review, he's on Channel 7 tonight, I think Radio 3AW, I've probably missed a few, but more power to you all. Um, as Fiona mentioned, I, I'm running the, the, the think tank, the Centre for Independent Studies, and we've been around since 1976. It's a long time, more than 40 years, and we've been very much engaged in debates surrounding productivity, economic reform, uh, culture, uh, Indigenous affairs, uh, China policy, healthcare, but we're particularly proud of the role that we've played in the education debates. We've been a leading player in the debates about school choice, as you've heard this evening, um, but we've also challenged many conventional wisdoms, whether it be um, questioning uh, the uh, Gonski school funding model, uh, defending the NAPLAN school standards policy. Um, and we're motivated not simply by any ideology to reduce the size and the scope of the government, although that's important, we're primarily motivated by a desire to help disadvantaged students. We just happen to believe that school competition, uh, parental choice, limited bureaucracies are the best ways of helping disadvantaged students. 
But as we've been shown tonight, uh, it's quite clear that we're not an echo chamber. We like to hear different points of view. And Diane was, uh, among others, uh, putting, pushing back on some issues of school choice. And we've heard some of the questions tonight reflecting that point of view. So uh, we subscribe to the great 19th century British liberal, uh, John Stuart Mill, who said those who know only his own view uh, knows little of that. In other words, uh, if you only know your own view, you don't really know much about it. It's only when you've been subjected to intense scrutiny and been tested by the opposite side, you know, the strengths and weaknesses of your own argument. And I think it's fair to say we've heard that this evening. 